All right, everybody. We're getting everyone ready to go. So while everyone gets seated, I'm going to give my little spiel about who we are, why you're here, and what is coming down the tracks. So, and then also I'm going to talk while one of our panelists is using the facilities. <laughs> um, so my name is Vanessa Richardson. I am director of California Groundbreakers, and that's a civic engagement organization that is filing for its 501c3. And it is, we're about, I don't know, nine months old, I think. Well, eight, eight months old. It started with an event at the uh, another art gallery, uh, Beatnik Studios, on the art scene in Sacramento and what is happening after Art Hotel and Art Street. And it has segued into events on the craft beer scene in Sacramento, the ag, agriculture technology or ag tech scene here in Yellow Sacramento region. Um, in January, we had events on pot being legalized. What does that mean for you as residents, taxpayers, inspiring entrepreneurs in the cannabis industry? Uh, we also had one on dating and relationships and, and how California with its, you know, Tinder and um, Match.com all starting here, how has that changed? So it's been a wide variety. But the goal is to look at California and how we do break ground in a lot of ways, technology, culture, policy, politics. Right now, uh, we're taking a look at housing, because that is such a big, big deal. Uh, it was kind of, it was born out of a personal interest. I just bought a house. I went in on it with my parents. House hunting was crazy. I wasn't sure if I would have to rent, and then looking at rents, I thought it was crazy. And then seeing a lot of articles about how people are saying things have to change, but how do we change them here? So this is part three of a four-part panel discussion called California's Crazy Housing Market, because it is kind of crazy. And this is part three. The first two, I do encourage you, we do podcasts for every event, so you can listen to them, and they've all been great discussions. The first one was an overview on the real estate market, especially here in Sacramento. Why are housing prices so high? Why are rents so high? Why, how you as a, a buying home buyer or renter looking, what do you need to know, how you can be prepared. So that was part one. The second part was last week here at the Brick House. It was about affordable housing. What does that mean here in California? It sometimes seems like an oxymoron. But we had a great panel of we had a great panel of panelists talking about what needs to be done to change that um, and how honestly how it comes from the ground up, how residents and what they call Yimbies, yes in my backyard people can go to their elected officials and say, here's what you need to do. So it's very interesting that we do play a role in how things can be done. This is the third part. Uh, gentrification is a term. Facebook, when I put this event, 65 character term, I put gentrification, but it's obviously a provocative term. And it does play into housing and how that's shaped and where it's shaped and who it's for and, and a whole whole bunch of stuff. So we're gonna go into that today. And then the final one will be on April 3rd in Old Sacramento actually at Graziano Speakeasy, very cool spot. It's gonna be on CEQA reform. And that is, CEQA is California Environmental Quality Act. So yes, it's very wonky, but very relevant in terms of here's this, um, I guess, legislation or ruling in effect that affects 
where we build, how we build, how much it costs to build before you even break ground, why we pay what we do. And there is a lot of buzz about it needs to be reformed, how much, um, and then how we as residents can, can um, handle that and make change in that way. So that is the next one. And then we have a whole bunch of stuff. So just quickly, I think many of you signed up on Eventbrite. Thank you very much for doing that because this was kind of a, officially our first sold out event. So yay. But we do have an email list, the Facebook page, the website. So I am trying to post the events as they get formed. So for all of you to to come to. I try to make the events free. I also try to have awesome uh, venues where we can have them and awesome drink and food provided by people who, who know what they're doing in terms of brewing and, and cooking. And of course, awesome panelists who come and talk to you. So I just want to quickly give a few thanks to people who helped me make this event possible. Uh, first and foremost, one of our panelists also, who is the owner and the curator of this lovely gallery, Brickhouse Barber Range. Thank you very much for hosting us here. A lovely spot. And also, I want to thank uh, our board members who are here tonight Tiffany Sharp, Scott Egger, uh, Mary McCune, who's not here but was also very helpful in, in helping me with the panel. Also, our volunteers, Deb Colleen and Adele Range. Barbara's sister who helped pour wine. I want to thank La Benedita, Amy Shentz, who's here making the great tostadas and the salad there down the street. And they came here and brought food. And Brandon from Roostaller, who's serving the beer. Um, so also, by the way, don't be shy. There's more food, there's drink in the back. So feel free to take a break and also get some air in the lovely courtyard. Last but not least, I want to thank our panelists for being here. I really appreciate you coming in uh, to talk on a Monday. And of course, you, the audience, for making the time out of a busy day to come here and talk. So that's my spiel. Now I'm going to let the panelists start doing the talking by introducing themselves. And I always start on my left and have each person give a little description about themselves. So I'm going to start with you. And I'm going to ask you, and going on down the line, your name, obviously where you work in your current role there. And then I always like to ask, a, I always like to know a little something personal about each one of you so I can relate in a way. Because this panel is on the crazy housing market, I've been asking all the panelists these sessions, what, what has made the, ha the housing market so crazy for you as you know, currently or in the past, as a renter, as a home buyer, as a professional in the role that you hold, what was some incident or some moment where you said, wow, it is a crazy housing market here? So Tom, let's start with you. All right, I'm Tom Carvenin. I'm one of the co-founders of Oak Park Brewing Company, across the street from us here. Um, my, uh, my role there, like I said, is, is a co-founder. As far as the housing market and how that's impacted me, um, it's directly responsible for me opening the brewery. I used to be in home building and land development until Lehman Brothers declared bankruptcy. <laughs> and after spending 20 to 25 years in a very, very cyclical market, I decided I wanted to do something that was just as fun for me, where I get to experience my creative side and analytical side in, in making beer and running the business, um, but something that you know, kind of could ride through that ups and downs of, of the housing market and recessions and that. Seems like people want to drink beer no matter what the economy is, so. 
Right. Thank you. I'm Tracy Stigler. I'm the president of St. Hope Development Company, and um, I've been out here in Sacramento since 2000 from uh, Phoenix, Arizona. A uh, story about the housing market, it hasn't impacted me much, uh, but it is sort of causing me some problems because I have a mother-in-law that stays in my house a lot, <laughs> and I really would like for her to find a place, and she keeps telling me it's just too darn expensive to buy a house, and I'm thinking, please. So if anyone has a house or even a room for rent, we can talk afterwards. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm Barbara Range, and I'm the director, curator, and co-owner of the Brick House Art Gallery. Um, so being here now for like eight years in the Oak Park community, but uh, in the Sacramento community for 20, um, but living and working in uh, Oakland during the day, uh, during the week while I was teaching there, still working. So when I retired about, yeah, eight years ago, um, had no idea what it was that I would uh, actually want to do other than just sleep. Um, <laughs> yeah, after you work 40 plus years, your body and your mind is just like really fried and your body needs rest. Um, but then um, one day just happened to uh, walk upon um, this building here. There was eight of us doing masterminding, trying to figure out what we were going to do uh, with our lives as we were aging. We were all like in our 60s and trying to figure out, okay, what's our purpose and what is it that it is that we want to um, to do? How do we want to serve? What, what, what do we want to really do with the rest of our lives? And so I came here with a collective of eight. And um, lo and behold, um, did not know that uh, David D. Camila, who had purchased this property 14 years ago, was actually looking for um, a partner. And that was kind of daunting, you know, for me. That was a little, a little scary for me because uh, still at that time, you're still trying to come out of that rise of the, uh, the housing market, the crash. I've just retired. Do I really want to do this? Um, and then my heart said yes. This big smile just came over my face. Uh, yeah, because I am used to to serving in community. So I think that. Um, this space for me and being here in in this um, uh, being here in this in in this community, we've been able to utilize this space uh, this this space to really help serve a purpose here in the community. So I think for me that's a motivator um, for being here in Oak Park for me. Hi, my name is William Berg. I'm a historian. My day job is I review nominations to the National Register, California Register, California Historical Landmarks, and other programs from all throughout the state. But uh, a lot of the, what I do is uh, in my free time is writing books about Sacramento, and I'm involved with several uh, local history and historic preservation nonprofits like Preservation Sacramento, uh, Sacramento Heritage Inc., and Sacramento County Historical Society. And uh, some of you may have uh, visited the display that we did called the West End Club as part of Art Street or uh, uh, the display that we had at the Marshall Hotel at Art Hotel. Um, as far as how gentrification has affected me personally, uh, to be honest, not very much. 
Uh, sure, when I moved to Sacramento in 1993, I, I called myself poor and uh, came out to live with a bunch of punks in, in Midtown and uh, work as little as possible and write and uh, create art and cause trouble, but uh, the term upwardly mobile applies. Uh, currently, I'm a, I'm a, my household is a white, middle-class, double-income, no-kids, highly educated, um, Lexus-driving, midtown homeowner. And we, I feel very, very fortunate that I was able to buy in the neighborhood that I fell in love with when I was a teenager. My wife feels the same way. But I look around at that neighborhood and how it has changed and how other neighborhoods in Sacramento has changed and realize that I'm the exception, not the rule. And a lot of my friends, a lot of people in my community are not in that fortunate situation. And so that's kind of opened my eyes. What, what can I do from where I'm sitting? to uh, make, that, make that situation a little more common amongst people for whom uh, it's currently out of reach. Hello, my name is Katie Valenzuela Garcia. I run my own consulting firm focused on social and environmental justice work here in Sacramento and across the state. I'm very fortunate to do the work that I do. I'm here tonight though as the president for the Oak Park Neighborhood Association. I live on 7th and MLK. Um, for my husband and I, we um, lived in Midtown and loved Oak Park. I did a lot of work in Oak Park, sat on a lot of couches here, knew a lot of folks before we decided to buy. And this just happened to be the only neighborhood we could afford that was within non-driving freeway distance to our jobs downtown. Um, of course, the only house we ended up getting was one, and the only reason we got it is because there was literally like a man living in the backyard um, who was not technically, did not have permission to be there, um, and this vacant house next door that was stuck in probate, that was this like rotating place where people would go to like do drugs and start fires. Um, and because of that, we got a house in Oak Park, and we were thrilled with the ability to come into a community that we loved. Um, and that was only two years ago, so I am what my neighbor has lovingly dubbed a gentrifier against gentrification. Um, but I think more than that, um, we had this neighbor, this kind of crotchety old guy who lived down the block that I like secretly totally loved. And he pretended to tolerate me, but I like to think that he loves me a little bit too. Um, his name's Lucky. That's not his real name. That's just what, he, what he's known by. Um, and he would always sit on the porch. He never wanted to go to the block parties and rah, rah, rah. But then if you went and knocked on his door during the block party, he was dressed and ready to go. He was just waiting to see if you'd come get him. Um, and this last summer, he lost his house um, due to back taxes. Um, it got put on auction. It had been on auction for a really long time, but this was the first year that I guess the house was um, deemed a good enough opportunity for somebody to actually come in and buy it. And he got a 30-day notice, and he's currently living in a trailer behind that house. Um, I saw him the other day for the first time in probably a couple of months. He's been kind of avoiding me a little bit, and I swear he's lost like... 30 pounds easily. Um, so that's how the housing markets impacted me. It made me fall in love with the community that I am incredibly passionate about and spend more time than my husband wishes I did um, fighting for and advocating for and working on behalf of. Um, and it's a community that breaks my heart because it's, it's slowly going away. Okay, so thank you panelists. Um, so I'm gonna give you a little note about the format, how we're gonna do it uh, tonight. So I'm gonna ask questions of the panelists Probably for about 40 minutes or so, I'm gonna gauge your interest and see who's yawning and so forth. I know, I have a feeling there's gonna be a lot of questions tonight. Caleb is at the mic where you're gonna be standing and lining up and asking questions. So <clears throat> right before, I'm gonna let you guys know, okay, start lining up for questions. And we have about half an hour or so. The goal is to finish around eight o'clock because I know there is an open mic at Oak Park Brewing. That's gonna start at seven but go until nine, so. Um, 
maybe we might need some laughter after this event, who knows. But uh, I will just let you know in advance, start lining up for questions. Of course, be succinct, if, especially if there's a line of people behind you. If you have a two-part question, because oftentimes you do, try to be brief. And then also, just a reminder, we are recording for podcast, so, you know, profanity, okay, but just let's be aware of what we're saying. You're going to be memorialized for posterity on the podcast. So um, my first question, I have a question for each of you, and, and many of you touched on it already about, you know, your connection to Oak Park. Uh, I, I lived down the road, officially in Tahoe Park, but I came through here to get my coffee at Old Soul. I've met Barbara before and come to the Brick House gone to Oak Park uh, Brewing Broadway Coffee. So I, I feel like Oak Park, I do see, just from my limited time here, well, coming back, because I, I did grow up in Carmichael and I came back a couple of years ago, I see in Oak Park the, the change that I saw when I lived in New York, when I lived in San Francisco, neighborhoods changing, places that you go to that um, came or or went. So I get the sense that this is, if not ground zero of the gentrification discussion in Sacramento, it's one of the places where there's a lot of discussion about it. So I feel like you all have a connection to Oak Park in, in whatever way. So I wanted to ask each of you uh, a question about that. And I wanted to start with you, Tracy, because Oak Park, uh, St. Hope Development obviously has done a lot of building, construction, renovation in Oak Park. So I wanted to see your connection to St. Hope, because you're not from here, but you now work here, and you see Oak Park on a regular basis. So how did you get here? And in your role at St. Hope, how do you interact with the community? What, what do you do? Who do you talk to? What's the role that you play here in the community? All right, thanks, Vanessa. So just by way of background, I was actually born and raised in Waterloo, Iowa. And if anyone can point that out on a map, I'll buy you a drink very small little northeastern city. Uh, I practiced uh, law for a while as a tax attorney in Phoenix, uh, and then I became in-house counsel for the Phoenix Suns. During that time, I met Kevin Johnson, and we became good friends. And over the years, while he was always talking about, uh, when I'm done playing, I'm going to go back to Sacramento, my hometown. I love this place. I'm going to do something great. And he talked about it. You couldn't have any conversation without him talking about Oak Park. Grew up in Oak Park. Uh, it's, it's the most beautiful place in the world. And, and, and I'm living in Phoenix thinking, wow, you know, one of these days I got to go check this place out, this Oak Park. And so for years and years he talked about it. And then he retired, came back to the Suns. And when he was leaving, he said, hey, um, what are you doing this summer? I said, I don't know. I wasn't married, didn't have any kids at that time. He said, go check out, go check out Oak Park. So I came out here, uh, did some work with the kids that he works with in the community with, with St. Hope, and just fell in love with the mission. Uh, on the drive back, to, uh, uh, my drive back to Phoenix, I gave him a call. I said, wow, that was a great experience. I met a lot of great people in the community. Uh, it wasn't exactly what I thought because I thought these streets were going to be gold. I thought there was going to be milk and honey. You know, I just, it just, it wasn't all of that. Uh, but the mission was amazing and the community was amazing. And he said, well, why don't you, why don't you just do it? And I'm thinking, you know, I'm an attorney for the Phoenix Suns. Uh, I'm making a little bit of good money. What am I going to do if I go to Sacramento? So I drove and by the time I got to LA, I decided it was sort of time for me to do something different. It sounds exciting to be an attorney for the Phoenix Suns, but my role really was to look at contracts, review the contracts, change the contracts, and then wait for the next season. 
And so there was a lot of downtime. And so I had an opportunity to come out here. I moved out here, uh, worked in Oak Park, lived in Oak Park, uh, came out here in 2000. Uh, we did some real estate projects um, on the corner of 35th and Broadway, uh, what we call 40 Acres was the first real estate development project that I worked on. And at the time, it was very interesting because we were trying to find tenants for the place. And it was really difficult. The Oak Park that you see today is a lot different from the Oak Park of 2000, believe it or not. I had an office on the corner of 30, uh, 34th and 3rd Avenue, and it has mirrored windows. Uh, every morning, because I was still young and, and had the legs and, long, and longs, Kevin and I would run at 5 o'clock every morning. Then I'd come back. We'd be at work by 6.30 or 7. I'd sit in my office at about 8 o'clock. Uh, the night workers would start their morning shift. And because I had mirrored, win mirrored windows, they literally would put on their makeup, change their clothes. Uh, for a while, it was kind of intriguing, uh, but then after a while, I was like, oh my gosh, here we go again. And so it was, a, it was a really different place. And so what we decided to do, I'm sorry, I'm losing my mic here a little bit, and I think it's because I'm holding my uh, cord here, I'm okay? Uh, what we decided that we were going to do is that we were going to make a big change in whatever we could do. This is part of Kevin's vision to make a big difference. And so we really started out working on economic development. And I'll talk a little bit later how we got into the education piece. Uh, but what I do on a day-to-day -day basis is we invest in real estate properties, mainly commercial properties. Um, we just try to hold on to them and develop and make sure that we get the right sort of tenants into the community that helps it grow. And so that's the story. Okay, and then on to the business owners. I'm gonna start with Tom, and you gave a little description about you started with home brewing, but then now you are right across the street. So how the connection to Oak Park, what did it mean to open up here? What was the personal um, connection, the business connection? How did that well, get you started? We, uh, we started home brewing here in Oak Park in uh, two of our co-founders' uh, driveways and garage. Um, and uh, Never thinking we'd open a commercial brewery, of course. We were just having fun, homebrewing. Um, we started inviting people over that were friends of ours that homebrewed, and we'd have, you know, big, big brew days, we called them. We'd 60 to 80 people sometimes um, on a Saturday while we were homebrewing all day. And, you know, we'd have barbecue going, we'd do all this. Pretty soon people started saying, you guys should be selling your beer. And we're like, yeah, whatever, you guys are our friends, you're drinking for free, of course you like it. <laughs> And um, Dave and I entered a few competitions. We won some, some awards. And we thought, OK, we do make decent beer. So I put a business plan together. We approached some investors. And we had our friends that, had, that were coming over to Dave and Bonnie's garage were calling it Oak Park Brewing Company tongue-in-cheek, right? So we just said, well, that's we have to keep that going. So we, we found, we, we, we were looking for a spot for a long time and the spot across the street became available and it was a natural for us, perfect uh, for what we wanted to do and we put the plan together and it just, we kept going. Great, okay. And then Barbara too, right across the street. Your connection to Oak Park, what drew you here? Did you look elsewhere or did you immediately just come here and, and want to set up shop or you looked elsewhere? And other, it just drew you here. I'm just curious about what brought you here to Oak Park specifically. 
Um, well, actually what brought me here is what I stated earlier. Um, there was a group of us that was on a spiritual journey and we were actually looking for um, spaces to be able to um, gather and do healing. And um, a friend of ours who actually grew up here, uh, Janice Wade, her mom is uh, Cordia Wade, and their family's very well known um, um, in the Oak Park community, this old Oak Park, um, um, African-American historical people, right? And um, so she's just out riding one day, and she sees this sign um, that was in the house next door, so which is actually my home, and it was a for rent sign. And um, we were still trying to figure out, okay, if we're going to do this, how we're going to gather, who's going to be in it, or what have you, um, and came back, and the space was gone but came in and um, Dave was here. And the studio, basement um, studio, happened to be open. Yeah, this is a, that's the largest studio here um, in, at the gallery. And we walked in and saw the space and everybody was just like, okay, we're gonna do this. So for me, it was not necessarily that I was going to be here or I was looking for something. No, I wasn't. I told you I wanted to sleep. I had just retired. Um, <laughs> so I was, I was really tired. And so um, I came in and um, saw this space. And it was functioning as a gallery, but not really functioning. Um, it was functioning in the community, but not really functioning. It hadn't really inserted itself into, into the community. And so we came, but the group it is that I came with, one by one started peeling off. And mind you, this wasn't my vision. This isn't anything it was that Barbara had, had seen for herself. Um, but one by one, each person started peeling off and as I said earlier, Dave was looking for a partner. And so it just so happened that, you know, it's like three times, what is it? It's a biblical phrase about, what is it, the, um, the crow or uh, in the Bible? And, and <laughs> let me touch him. <laughs> uh, but there's, there was a phrase. But anyway, you know, so it's like three times in that third time there was um, um, actually a vision that had come to me, you know, that an opportunity such as this doesn't happen very often. And so the um, third request I accepted, and um, I've never looked back. Um, has it been very daunting, you know, uh, in the beginning, just really trying to um, create something, build a name, uh, get support, develop relationships, um, yeah, um, but the effort was definitely, definitely worth it. But that was how I literally came to Oak Park. It was literally with us um, trying to find um, spaces for the healing and masterminding and Reiki and everything and meditating that we could possibly find. And we found this space and um, we actually generated um, Actually, one of the first healing centers was right downstairs in uh, the basement there. Yeah.
And one thing I like about the gallery is, even though it's raining and you can hear it, it feels very cozy in here, so. Um, Katie, question for you. You did mention you know, how you got to Oak Park as a, as a homeowner, and then your involvement with the Neighborhood Association. What inspired you to come on board, and what have you done in your role there in, in the community? What have been some highlights? What have been some challenges? Just curious, you know, in that role, what that's been for you. Yeah, um, so when I, before I moved to Oak Park, I studied community development at UC Davis. It's what brought me up to Sacramento from Oildale, which if you can name where that's at, I'll also buy you a beer, um, in Kern County on the north side of Bakersfield. And I am... Um, I um, learned from a lot of great people, and one of them was uh, Dr. Jesus Hernandez, um, who's still very active locally, very, very active locally. Um, one of the things I learned from him before moving in from Davis into the city of Sacramento was about this like really racialized history of land use policy in Sacramento, that it wasn't an accident that... Um, people um, were living where they lived and were seeing the health outcomes that they saw. Um, so here in Sacramento, um, for Oak Park specifically, right, it was originally an all-white suburb. It was one of the first suburbs of Sacramento. But, but after um, a certain number of years, when the freeway came through, um, you started seeing things like racially restrictive covenants on that side of the freeway that said you can't sell this house to someone who's not white. Um, and similarly, you started seeing those like predatory home loans and mortgage defaults happening on this side of the freeway. You started seeing businesses leave, um, the fair left, and William, I'm sure we'll talk all about this, but, but the, the segregation that happened um, happened here in Oak Park too, even though it was originally built for white homeowners. Um, so I knew before I came into Sacramento that there was this history in Sacramento. Um, and when I started doing work for nonprofits in the area, it was right around the time that the Building Healthy Communities Initiative was starting with the California Endowment. And their premise was that, you know, where you live, your zip code shouldn't determine your life expectancy. Um, do you know that, like, still, based on 2014 data, you cross the freeway into Curtis Park and your life expectancy will go up to 6 to 12 years? Six, a decade, you will live longer on that side of the freeway than you live in Oak Park to this day. And I can still pull maps on tree canopy data where there's more dense trees. Those were also historically white communities. I can pull data on where there's bike and pedestrian collisions. Where those happen, still the communities where people of color have historically lived. I can pull school data. I can pull any, like, you name the statistic that defines what we call a quote-unquote good community. And it historically has been for white communities. And it still persists to this day. Even though we're one of the most integrated cities in America, it's all relative, and that still doesn't say much about integration because we're still pretty segregated here in Sacramento. So when I um, had the opportunity to start doing work, I was doing this garden program. It was this backyard and front yard and community garden program that eventually led to the Urban Ag Coalition, that eventually led to those ordinances. Um, I would literally sit on these couches because UC Davis had given us this like five-page long survey to give to people, and so the only way you could get it done, because nobody would send it back, was to actually sit on the couch with somebody and ask them all these questions. And the more that I met and really talked to the people who lived in this neighborhood, the more I just fell in love. Like even the chain link fences and the pit bulls in the front yard meant nothing. Because when they would start to go to those questions about, do you want to do workshops with your neighbors? Do you want to get to know other gardeners? Community? They're like, yeah. Like they were hungry to know each other. And this history of activism that I saw here was just incredible. So not only were we so excited to get a chance to buy a house here, and my husband was a little bit more reticent. I think what convinced them was 
the fact that Brute Ferment Distill was around the corner and he was a home brewer and he's like, oh, okay, we can probably work this out. <laughs> but I was thrilled. And so like literally that next month, like we moved in right before Christmas 2014 and that January meeting for the Oak Park Neighborhood Association, I was there. Um, and it took about four or five months before the board members started coming up to me and being like, you know, if you're going to talk so much, like you should probably come and join the board. Um, and since then, I mean, I've helped the board, like we've worked on canvassing campaigns. We've tried to knock on every house and apartment door in this neighborhood to check in with folks. What's going on? What do you like about this community? What do you wish was missing? Um, and, and I think what I've, this complex notion of what's happening in this city, um, the fact that kids are maybe less likely to pick up a drug needle on the street, that they're a little less likely to hear gunshots at night is great. And it, but the unintended consequence of those good things is gentrification. And that's not good because all those people who dealt with pulling their kids away from the needle or had to talk to them about what it meant that they were seeing women on the street at night or that they were hearing these gunshots. Um, now we're having to leave the community that was finally getting to the point where maybe they would live a little bit longer if they stayed here. Um, so that's largely what we're still doing with Oak Park Neighbor Association. I think we're still figuring out what that looks like for us, um, which I'm sure we'll talk about more throughout the panel. But um, that's why I spend way more time than I probably should even being a business owner. And you can probably attest there's not a lot of spare time there, but almost every hour of that that is not with my husband is doing stuff for OPNA. Okay, I hope every, everyone can hear us still. The rain is coming down, but let me know if you need any of us to speak up. So William, my question for you is broader than Oak Park because you have looked at the history of Sacramento and it seems just based on, since the gold rush days, neighborhoods have changed a lot. And my background is I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a freelance journalist by day, so I wrote a story recently for the Sacramento News and Review about uh, Japantown, lost Japantown. So we had a Japantown here near where the Crocker Museum is and the California Museum, and it basically literally got raised to the ground uh, for urban renewal, urban development in the 50s. So there was a neighborhood that was thriving and just for many reasons just got, uh, it disappeared. And the residents moved elsewhere. So I didn't know about that. So I wanted to ask you in terms of, it seems like there's, maybe there's cycles of dilapidation, uh, people discovering a place, renewal. Um, so I was gonna ask you for an a perfect example of that in Sacramento, but also maybe here Oak Park or another neighborhood that you think really represents this 21st century version of gentrification. Is it, is it different? Is it the same as it was in the 19th century, in the 20th century? Or is there something that's different because we're in the 21st century that makes gentrification, neighborhood revitalization, urban renewal different? I just wanted to see from your point of view, from history, what you see today uh, different or the same? All right, it's, a, it's kind of a tough question. Um, I don't know too much about the, the cycles that you speak of. I mean, from the gold rush going forward, that's a lot of, that's a lot of territory. Um, the earliest example that I can find, at least that I could think of, of a neighborhood that began to revitalize after a period of dilapidation was the West End. 
And that was Sacramento's Japantown. It was also Sacramento's African-American community at the heart of its Latino community. There was also a small Filipino community there. And it was generally, uh, if you start from the, the steps of the state capitol, it was pretty much everywhere west of there to the Sacramento River from, um, as you could theoretically say it went as far north as I Street, which was Chinatown. Uh, L Street was the heart of the Latino community. Uh, M Street was the heart of Japantown. And if uh, people know, um, 6th and O Street was the original location of Shiloh Baptist Church. And there's an African-American community there that dated back to the gold rush. And this area was, um, in the years after World War II, kind of in a state of dilapidation because pretty much the entire country was in a state of dilapidation after the Great Depression and after years of material shortages in World War II. There wasn't materials or money to repair homes. Uh, one thing that had happened as a result of World War II was internment of the entire Japanese population, which all of a sudden became opportunity for African-American migrants who were moving to California and uh, found that this was a place where they could live, where there was work. Uh, they could also afford to buy property and buy businesses. Sacramento's African-American community tripled almost overnight during World War II. Two. Uh, this happened in a lot of places. Uh, the Fillmore in San Francisco, there, there's, this, was, this was also a Japantown that became an African-American community. And following the war, the return of the Japanese community, they came back to the neighborhood. Uh, this was, by the early 50s, from some of the photos that I have seen, not a dilapidated neighborhood. This was not a neighborhood that was run down or in poor shape. Uh, buildings were being repaired. Buildings were in use. New construction was going on. Not because banks or the, the city was in any shape or had any interest in lending them money. The local NAACP had its own credit union. Uh, local developers leveraged what money they could to repair properties that they could. And so by the early 50s, Sacramento's Japantown, the West End, was coming back to life. It was reviving. It also became a center for art and culture. It was the nightlife capital for the region. The best jazz clubs, the best jazz clubs were all in the West End, and the best jazz entertainers in the country all made it a mandatory stop on their tours. But this area was still entirely defined as blighted, not because of the condition of the buildings, but because blight was largely determined by the race of the occupants of those buildings. So in the view of the powers that be, the entire neighborhood had to go. Uh, so the the whole area where you, that you, if you take a look at Capitol Mall now, from the Sutter Club to the river, there's a whole stretch of land where there's nothing older than about 1950. And that's where the West End was. And where people went uh, depended largely on where there was some place to go. Uh, racial exclusion covenants, as you mentioned, they've been, those have been around since about the 19-teens uh, with uh, the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan uh, after the, uh, the movie Birth of a Nation. They became really popular in the 19-teens and 1920s, and they became almost mandatory in the late 1930s after the Homeowners Loan Corporation was created and uh, neighborhoods were redlined, that is, they were graded for home loans based on based uh, on, on many things, on, on mixed use, on condition of buildings, but primarily on the race of occupants. And you got the highest rating for home loans, it, not only if the neighborhood was all white, but was segregated. Uh, in the South, it was legally segregated by, by city and state law. In California, it was de facto segregation, where it was a private contract that said that you just couldn't sell that property to someone who wasn't white. But Oak Park was not 
racially covenanted for the most part. Uh, Oak Park had been built in the built out in the 1880s and 1890s, so it was before racial covenants came into use. There was also a small African American community already here. Uh, many of you uh, may have heard of uh, Dunlap's Dining Room. George Dunlap moved to this moved to this neighborhood in 1906. He was an African American chef, and uh, when he moved here, the rest of the neighborhood is mostly strawberries. Now. The neighborhood in the 1950s became what I call a neighborhood of exodus. Um, it was a place where people fleeing the demolition of the West End came because they had no other choice. Um, now, I mentioned Shiloh Baptist Church. They bought a plot of land on 7th Avenue and started building not only a church but also apartments. Um, that exodus meant the... Um, it's kind of like running out of a burning building. If your house is on fire, what do you grab on your way out? If you're a neighborhood, you grab your businesses, you grab your families, you grab your institutions, your traditions, your churches. And when you arrive, you unpack. And the traditional narrative about Oak Park in the 1950s and 60s is that's when the neighborhood went into decline. Now, what a depressing thing to hear that when you arrived in the neighborhood, that's when the neighborhood went into decline. It's kind of like being at a party. So we were all having fun until you showed up. Um, and that's, that's a, a dangerous narrative because what happened wasn't a decline. Uh, it, I'd call it more of a renaissance. Uh, I, the book I wrote, Sacramento Renaissance, is about the fact that when these communities arrived, they unpacked those cultures, those businesses, those ideals, and they flourished, um, that which was very much against, I think, the, the, the wishes of the folks who had kicked them out of downtown in the first place. The assumption was that they would simply vanish. There was no plan for where people were supposed to go. But that's urban renewal, otherwise known as urban removal. It's a very different thing from gentrification. And I read this wonderful quote by a historian named Rebecca Solnit about comparing gentrification and urban renewal. Um, now, people often blame artists for gentrification but because developers follow them. But, um, but young, young girls are often followed around by creeps, but we don't blame young girls for the presence of creeps. The other analogy was uh, that urban renewal is like, um, it's like an oil slick. It's like when a, a, an oil tanker, an oil spill pollutes an area. There's a definite cause, it's right there, it came out of that tanker, and that's what caused this. Gentrification is more like air pollution. It's not something that you can on one, any particular person. It's not one person's actions that causes gentrification, but we're all responsible for it, which implies that if there's a solution, it's a shared responsibility among all of us to say this is having an effect, not because I consciously am doing something harmful, but because what I'm doing, what we're all doing, is causing harm. What steps can we take to reverse that? So, Tracy, I'm going to ask you for your for to follow up on that because you do you are doing the development redevelopment of buildings you said 40 acres old soul so from your point of view and kevin johnson's point of view as an oak park resident what based on what william said too if you want to take that into account what is the mission of saint hope in terms of its vision for oak park is it dilapidated? Are you just building up on what's already here? What what are you wanting to see Oak Park like in the next five years, 10 years, 20 years, and how is St. Hope playing a role in that? 
Right, thank you. Um, so our goal really when we came in to the community, we didn't just come into the community. Uh, the founder of our organization was born and raised in Oak Park. And so the goal that we had was really to be a catalyst. And at the time that we were developing projects in Oak Park, there really wasn't a lot of interest. And so there were plenty of opportunities for us to gather uh, strategically gather land and plots and buildings, knowing that in the future that we'd be able to control the way that the communities developed, not really knowing what that meant. Uh, when we were acquiring, when we opened up our 40 acres project, it was really interesting to, to me uh, because I wasn't a developer, but trying to get tenants to come into Oak Park initially was, was quite, quite a task, and, and I thought it was really going to be easy. So look, we just painted the walls and we just put in carpet, can you come to Oak Park? Uh, and it didn't quite work that way. Uh, our, our major tenant that we got in at the time was Starbucks, and it was really interesting to me how that all went down. So Starbucks goes into certain communities, and they had a, they had a contract with Magic Johnson. Uh, so certain communities with certain demographics, he had the right of first refusal. And so we thought we'd just call Starbucks and say, hey, I'm, I'm calling Starbucks on behalf of Mayor Kevin Johnson, he wasn't the mayor at the time, uh, you know, can you, bring, oh, can you bring Starbucks here? Uh, and so we were moving along with this deal and we get a call from Magic Johnson's people and they say, hey, I um, understand you're trying to do Starbucks in the hood. And they're like, yeah, kind of cool, huh? And they're like, no, we, we have that territory. And so there was some back and, back and forth on that. So it, it really showed me that there's, there's definitely an asset there, there's definitely an interest there. Um, but the way it sort of played out uh, was really sort of eye-opening to, to what it meant to the community because everyone told me, if Starbucks is willing to come to your community, then you've arrived. So this was 2001, and at that time I thought, okay, it's 2001, we're on, uh, the whole community is going to develop. Uh, you know, fast forward to 2017, uh, and now you see a lot of renewed interest. And so our goal and the way it's played out, I, I think we probably couldn't control a lot of things, but I think we planned it the way that we wanted to. We wanted to make sure that the assets that came into the community were beneficial. Uh, at the time that we first came into the community, there was a disproportionate amount of nonprofits, a disproportionate amount of thrift stores, a disproportionate amount of, of uh, uh, liquor stores. And so the only way that you can combat that and change the community is sort of strategically control what happens with the land around. And then the other part for us was really, as we determined that we were going to try to be a catalyst for the community, what are the kids that we're raising in the community saying? Okay, we may be able to bring in some more businesses, but uh, what about education? And then we got engaged into to charter schools. And so now our mission really has expanded from just being a catalyst from the economic development point to actually starting and running uh, charter schools from pre-K uh, to 12th grade. And so that's, that's what we do in the community. I'm sure you guys have, have seen us around and we'll be around for a while. Um, and we got a lot more projects uh, that you'll see coming forward in the future. So what's your view of gentrification versus, you know, we're revitalizing or renewing a neighborhood? Um, you ha you how does it work? Is there a balance that you feel you have to do when you approach each project, or how do you face that? Yeah, it's, it's really 
difficult when you're talking about a community and you don't have control over the community. We have control over some assets, but the community is, is what it is. The community is the community. We, we can't determine who our tenants are going to be. We can't determine who's going to be in the community. Uh, and that's not, our, that's not our goal. Our goal is to create a safer community, a better community for the children that are coming through the community. Uh, from a business perspective, uh, we really try to partner with people who share that same vision, uh, who share a vision for trying to ensure that our kids have places to go after school, uh, that they have jobs, et cetera. And so that's really our, our goal. It's, it's really, really difficult. My, my father used to say, and it took me a long time to figure it out for a couple of reasons. One, was really hard-headed, and, and two, uh, I'm learning from my son that it takes a while before you listen to your dad. But he would always say, you know, if, if you're not at the table, you're probably on the menu. And so, uh, you know, for a while I would, I would think, what, what in the heck does that mean? Uh, but now it's, it's becoming pretty evident that if you don't have a seat at the table, as you watch our community change, it's very difficult to come and have a voice. There are a number of people, when we talk about gentrification, it really depends on what lens you're looking through. For my developer lens, I'm going, gee, this is great. Our rent rates are going up. Um, our property values are going up. There are businesses coming in. Our vacancies are going down. Uh, but from a community standpoint, you know, gentrification has a lot of positives. I think the negative that most people talk about, and they may not say it this way, but it's really the change in the culture. It's what's coming into the neighborhood, what's leaving the neighborhood, how's the neighborhood changing. And so it's, it's really a matter of perspective. You either love it or you hate it, and there are not a lot of people in the room who are, who are kind of standing on the fence. Uh, for me, I, I'm able to see it through both lenses, and I, I understand from my business perspective, I want to see positive change. I want to see increases in value. Um, I want to see the community thrive. I want it to be safer for the kids. I want education to be at the level that you find in other communities. Um, but it's hard. I mean, I, I don't think there's anyone in this room that can really control how this community changes. All we can do uh, from St. Hope's perspective is control the assets that we have and try to ensure that they align with our vision. Okay, so Tom, the next question's for you as a business owner. How, how, how long have you been officially in business? We opened uh, November 2014, so just about two and a half years uh, Two and ago. a half years, okay. So, so I'll, I'll say that I did ask a few other businesses uh, to be on the panel, and a couple of them said no. It's too contentious. We've gotten a lot of uh, threats, hate mail. We just feel too uncomfortable. But what I know when I asked, when I asked Tom, when I emailed, can you please be a panelist, the reply was immediate. I want to participate. When I asked La Venedita, um, can you make food? Yes, we want to. And, and there was an article, I don't know how many of you looked at the Facebook post that I put on the, on the, um, for, pretty much on a re regular basis to promote the event. One of them was a Sacramento Bee article on La Venedita that's been here, I think, a little more than a year, maybe more or less, where the owner, Tom Schentz, if I'm saying his name correctly, said, you know, I grew up here in Sacramento. I left, I went to the Bay Area. I opened up some restaurants. I came back, and there was an article in the Bee, and I got someone saying to me basically some profanities, and he said, uh, this was a butcher shop that has been vacated. No one used, I'm paraphrasing now, but no one used it. I made it a great space. I put a restaurant here. It's not $50 a plate, but I'm trying to, to do my 
my best for the community, more or less. So I want to get involved. For you, I'll say this. I had a couple of friends say, I like to go there. I, I like the beer, and I like to sit out there. But I notice when I'm there, I look around, and it's a lot of white faces. And then when I look on the streets, you know, I, I know I'm in Oak Park, but it's different. And I'm not sure if you may have heard this before. But in your role as a business owner coming to Oak Park, how do you view your contribution to this neighborhood? And how do you interact with the community? Do you feel you have to defend your involvement here, or, or is that not an issue? I'm just wondering what your role in gentrification, urban renewal is as a business owner in Oak Park. I think uh, as far as having to defend anything, that's very, been very, very minor. Mo most of our feedback has been extremely positive, and I know some people have the perception of what you described about the the racial and demographic makeup of our customers, but uh, when I tell it to our, our regulars who are, have a wide diversity, uh, they laugh. So <laughs> I, I do think that uh, we do represent the current community that's here in Oak Park, at least over the last two and a half years. I, I can't speak to before that. Um, we came to this area because, like I said, our co-founders, one, one who's in the room here, um, have a long history, um, in, including a, a family history with, with Oak Park, and we felt that we really wanted to be a community hub, and as this neighborhood grew and developed and changed, maybe we could be a place where people could come and come together. We have this great big patio, we have a cool interior, and people could meet and get to know each other and bring their families and their dogs and just really be part of the community, that community hub and support. We try to support uh, you know, local groups and, and charities that are, that are Oak Park-centric uh, whenever we can. So we, we just really wanted to, to create that space and, and be a part of the community that way. Okay, and then Barbara, I, I guess another question on business and art. This pertains to another post that I, that I linked to on, on the Facebook page because I found it really interesting. There was, it, it seems like in many cases across, well, not just in the U.S., but in, in the world, um, one group of people that are kind of like pioneers if that's the term you want to use for going into a neighborhood that is down on its luck or artist. Um, like for example, in New York, Soho, uh, there was all this these warehouses, uh, factories um, that were uh, being that were not being used, and artists who wanted you know big spaces and high ceilings, cheap rent went in there. Now Soho is Soho in New York, and Berlin is also facing this now. Artists went in; it was cheap, a lot of space, and now Berlin is dealing with the gentrification issue and how to solve it. What was interesting was most recently here in California, there's a neighborhood in Los Angeles. It's called Boyle Heights. It's near downtown Los Angeles. And I think it is middle class, maybe middle to lower class, uh, a lot of uh, Latino uh, population in Boyle Heights. Artists, uh, at least art galleries, were starting to move there because the rent was cheaper than downtown that has a lot of, uh, that has been gentrified are on its way up, so they were looking for cheaper space, art galleries opened up, and the residents basically, for the most part, said, no, we don't want that, that's gonna change our whole neighborhood. And they were very vocal and very, sometimes physical about, we don't want you here. And there was one art gallery that basically said, you know, all of our art is, um, we, we, we were race, uh, 
we're race we're racially neutral gender blind we include all art but they don't want us here and we're leaving so it was a very interesting example of how you know they didn't even want artists to be there because they saw that as a sign of bad things happening so i was just curious you know in your role as an artist someone who champions art as a gallery when you look at that boyle heights what does that mean to you is that something that um maybe just taken out of hand or art can work in the community it just depends on how it's in integrated what i just wanted to know your thoughts well, um, first of all, I, I am a transplant. I'm originally from Los Angeles, so I'm a LA native. So I have watched the change in terms of the art community there. Um, I've actually watched that grow because I grew up with the art community. And um, coming from Watts, um, my parents, had a home in Watts, California. So we've also had uh, the first Ferguson is what I call it, is the Watts riot. So I am a product of that martial law and seeing transition happen. I grew up in communities and I really needed to state that because for me, it's, it's about race. Um, it's about communities that have been marginalized by race. And this is the issue that we never, ever, 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 ever want to talk about. It is, we're, we're colorblind. No, you can't be colorblind because there are communities that have just evaporated uh, systemically throughout the United States. And you can say riots caused that, um, not necessarily riots. It was upheaval behind uh, being deprived in your communities or being ignored in your communities. So I've heard like, for instance, about you know gentrif gentrification, the G word. Um, so when the community is changing or being gentrified, community here, what it is that I've heard is, so you think that we didn't want stores, you think that we didn't want, you know, to have, uh, you know, um, a, a boutique here, um, grocery stores, laundromats, or what have you. There is what I feel sometimes is an abstinence of understanding historically divisive racism that has separated communities and created communities purposely. For me, I can I, I'm, I'm going to own that. I'm going to own what it is that, that it is that I'm saying. For me, it's like almost purposely or intentional that some of these communities have just been left. I'm going to digress. Growing up in Watts, so the Watts that I grew up in in the 60s, 64 through uh, 1970, okay, we had grocery stores, we had um, black ownership, we had beautiful communities. I didn't know the community that happened after the riots. I didn't know that. We had green lawns. We had two-parent households in our families. We had parents that worked that had, that were also entrepreneurs, okay? We had excellent school systems. Nickerson Gardens, Jordan Downs, Imperial Courts, they didn't, we didn't even call them that. They were not projects. They were beautiful uh, uh, townhomes that also had 
um, um, awesome families that were in there, green lawns, beautiful spaces. As a matter of fact, we lived in a house. I wanted to live in the projects because they look so nice. So, but then you have, you're, you're still dealing with um, the redlining. So here I am, we're Central, 103rd. That's a black community. You can go up downtown, you could see the Hollywood sign. You could see the change in the community. You could definitely see the change in the community. So you're here, riots come, and the community is burned, but for 40, 50 plus years, nothing's done. Nothing's done. So you have, you have a community that's even worse than what it was when I was living there, even though I didn't see that. I didn't see that type of, of poverty. Did I see that we were corralled in a certain area or community? Yeah, I saw that because I could go to Wilshire, I could go to Olympic, I could go over to Fairfax, Third Street, and, I, and visibly see that there was a difference. Visibly see that there was a difference. How do we create the inclusion as an art community being like a voice or the voice or the vocal voice for uh, the representation of a community? You can't do that without the inclusion of the community. And so one of the things that we've tried to do here, if you follow the, you know, follow the Brick House, we're always trying to include community, if not the topics and the discussion, working with the different groups who are working on policies and issues, you know, that are dealing with uh, housing, that are dealing with um, um, uh, healthcare, you know, that are dealing with uh, education, in order to help to create a collective or a collaborative change in, in the community. The Boyle Heights issue was, is if you're going to come into the community, you don't step into someone's community without building community with them. So I'm not against um, um, the, the, the protests that happened, where some of the protests a little, um, you know, excited or elevated, <laughs> yeah, you know, because you're coming into a community and you're establishing something and you're establishing something at the exclusion of that community. So how do we create that balance? I think that's all communities are asking. The people that are already existing in the community are saying, how do I get a voice in what my community is going to look like? Period. That's, that's all that's, that's being asked. The art community here, I don't feel like um, Dave stepped into this community when he first got this space because I would not have been here and I would not have partnered with him if I thought that he was coming into a community uh, to completely ignore a community. So I had to feel an alignment with him because I'm a grassroots organizer, you know, I'm a little rebel, I'm a little radical. Um, but I like being that. I like being on that cutting edge because that allows you that voice uh, to be able to stimulate and create that conversation and that dialogue. And I see that as as, as being the, the purpose of this space being here. You're here. 
um, this space is not just for art, you know, this space is a community space where we're able to come and, and create the policies and the change it is that we want to see. The artists that I work with are the exact same way. There is no artist that is housed here in the Brick House that is not some way or another invested in community, literally. Literally. They can't be here if they're not, and that's serious. So everybody here is invested in community one way or another, in the schools, in the hospitals, working with grassroots organizations, um, creating um, um, uh, coalitions out in, in, in the community, uh, beautifying edification out in the community. They're, they're, everyone here is invested that way. So artists, for me, art is activism. Um, Art is, is the voice, poetry. It is the voice of a community, it is the voice of the people. Um, I don't, I've never seen change in the world without art being at the forefront of it. And so for me, that's the, the representation of uh, the Brick House, uh, the community in, in uh, Echo Park, Boyle Heights, uh, Jordan Downs, which is going through a gentrifi uh, gentri uh, gentrified experience right now, but not without that community. So that's a housing community where the, the people in that community have organized themselves and have said, no, you will not come in here and displace us and decide what our community is going to look like you will not come in and tear down row by row by row by row and we not have a stake in what it's going to look like. So I think that, that proper etiquette, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm trying, I can't use the other words, you know, but um, proper etiquette is us showing respect and uh, to one another and, and being able to hear one another, irregardless of if I like gentrification or I don't like it, or being displaced or not being displaced. But we have to be able to hear each other's voice in those, in those um, um, situations and allow that to be able to, to happen and show itself. <coughs> All right, so I have a couple more questions for Katie and then William, and then, uh, and then it'll, I'm gonna turn the mic over to you guys. So Katie, now we're, this is a housing market focused uh, panel officially, so I wanted to ask you about the efforts that you're doing about housing a community land trust. Mm -hmm. So I wanted you to explain what that is and how you envision that working in neighborhoods like Oak Park, and, and wh what's the status right now on, on the efforts for that community land trust? I will, and um, first I, I have to digress because I've been sitting over here with all these thoughts bubbling inside of me, and, and I love Oak Park Brewing. I think my husband spends more money there than I care to admit, um, but I will admit that I've walked in there more than once and been the only person who was not white. Um, and same with Lavanadita. I mean, when Lavanadita opened in this neighborhood, I mean, I'm from the Central Valley. Like, you open a taco place within walking distance of my house, I'm going to go. Um, I'm going to go many times and spend much money there. And it was jarring to walk in and see every single face of the staff, of the people eating, white. 
every single face to the point where it shocked me. I don't know what I was expecting, but I walked in there and almost like, I almost left, and then I'm like, no, I want tacos. So I stayed, but I wasn't comfortable the entire time. I think um, there's an intentionality, like Barbara talked about, with who we hire, how we work within communities when you come into a community that needs to be addressed. But I also want to talk about something Tracy said, because you kept saying communities don't have control over what happens in their neighborhood, I think is how you phrase that. And I completely disagree, respectfully. Um, I think the city of Sacramento has been incredibly negligent in their responsibility when it comes to land use and housing policy in the city, incredibly negligent. We have done nothing to put reasonable restrictions on how much a landlord can increase rent year to year. We have done nothing to protect um, people who can't fix up their homes and fix repairs for code violations because of lack of income, who then lose their homes, like my neighbor Lucky did, due to back taxes and other debts. Um, I have a guy in my neighborhood right now that's about to lose his house over a $2,000 water bill. That's what it started as, a $2,000 water bill. And it slowly compounded to the point that there is no way that even if I decided that I wanted to just pay his debt that I'd be able to afford it. He's losing his home. Um, so the city of Sacramento has a land use authority that says that they should be making sure that development in the city benefits everybody. And that has not been what our policy has been. We do not require new developments to have a significant percentage of their housing as affordable. We do not require developers who can't do affordable housing to pay a significant fee into an affordable housing trust fund that would actually generate affordable housing for people. And this is the natural byproduct. Gentrification is not something that we put quotes around. This is a fact. This is something that happens. It happens in every community when you see this level of investment. Every community where you see this level of development activity, prices go up, people leave. Um, so this is not a theory anymore. And yet we've waited until it's gotten to this point in Midtown, and we've waited until it's gotten to this point in Oak Park. But before we've done anything. And honestly, like I tell people pretty honestly that I think it's too late for this part of Oak Park. And it makes me really sad. It doesn't mean that I don't think we can build it back eventually, but the market's gotten to a point up here. There's no way that a land trust going to be able to do anything. Even in my part of the neighborhood on 7th Avenue, the house next to me, the little drug fire den that eventually sold out of probate for $45,000, sold less than six months later for over $300,000 in the cash buyer who came in a way above asking price. Um, thus, this is happening. And so the idea of a land trust is that we actually take certain parcels out of that market cycle and put it under a completely democratic community governance structure. So there is a democratically elected process where people within neighborhoods across the city can elect people to represent them on this land trust. And the purpose, like, I can sell you the building on this property. You can build wealth in that building. You'll own the value of that building. But I'm going to keep ownership of the land. And you're going to lease the land from me so that when you resell that property, I can control a little bit how much equity you've built so that that stays affordable. Ironically similar to the mechanism used in the racially restrictive covenants days, but for the power of good. Um, so we're using the same tools, but for good outcomes. Um, we're currently in the process of developing our bylaws. A lot of the communities that you've been talking about, um, Santa Ana, South LA, Oakland, have started this model because really, when I go to these conferences um, across the nation, we've been asking this question, what do we do, what do we do, what do we do? Well, obviously, the housing policies is a big part of it. Economic development, who gets access to loans, who gets access to business spaces, who's getting hired for these jobs, like, where are the businesses? I mean, I love that Oak Park Brewery is owned by Oak Park residents, but like, we need to be fueling more of that. It takes investment and intention on behalf of the city to make sure that that's what happens. Um, but then there's this other side of it with like, you know, eventually we just have to take some things out of the market. And so hopefully, 
a land trust will be able to garner the type of support um, and membership that will allow us to be fiscally sustainable so we can actually start acquiring enough properties to try to make a dent. Um, a lot of the neighborhoods south, I do a lot of work um, in my consulting world in like, you know, Avidel Glenelder or Meadowview and Del Paso Heights, and they know it's coming for them. They're just waiting for when. This is always what happens, and we know this by now. We've seen it in the East Coast. We've seen it in the Bay Area. We've seen it in LA. This isn't a mystery anymore. Um, a land trust is just one of many tools, but it's not a get out of jail free card for a city and it's not um, a get out of jail free card for developers. Um, you know, we need to be holding ourselves more accountable to the less fiscally um, satisfying way of doing business in this town, which it sometimes means that you build a, buy a house and you don't sell it to the highest bidder. You know, and sometimes it means that you own a commercial space and you give it below market rate to a locally owned business because it's the right thing to do. Um, obviously, that's within the parameters of what's possible for you, but I'm, I'm sick of developers telling me like, well, this is just the cheapest that I can develop it. Like that new development on 19th and J, that affordable housing module units, that is market rate per square foot. And they're just selling you a tiny closet of market rate and calling it affordable because it's going to be less than $1,000. That's not affordable. That developer is making just as much money if she made those walls a little bit different spacing and sold it at a regular apartment price. Um, so I think we need to be holding ourselves more accountable to the policies and practices and intentionality that Barbara was talking about. How do we make sure that we actually are a city that doesn't develop. I keep calling, like, you know, the um, Hunger Games, they have that, like, really big, like, fancy city in the middle of town, and you've got all these slums around the town. I'm like, that's where we're headed. Like, eventually, we're going to run out of places to go. I do some work in the avenues. Anyone know where the avenues is? 47th Avenue and MLK. It is not, it is a, that place, no grocery store within miles, the craziest crime stories that I've heard in a while in the city. They're having one-bedroom apartments go for $750 a month. Think about that. Like, that's more expensive than my first apartment in Midtown when I first came here. So it is happening. It is not going to stop. This is not a bubble. We need to learn and think ahead and start being a little bit more attention about where we put our money and how we make our policies. And one second. Um, so, yeah, because this is such a complicated, multifaceted discussion comment, this is, you know, uh, part three of four, uh, I would encourage you, a lot of what you touched on is in the podcast, one part one and part two on the housing market and affordable housing and what goes into that because it is so complicated and integrated. So yeah, what Katie talks about, uh, we we kind of go into a little more detail in those podcasts. So for more, for more information, please listen. So Tracy, you said you want to comment on that. Yeah, please do. Yeah, just want to. And before we, uh, Ashley, <laughs> yeah. uh, let's have people start lining up the mic. If you have questions, yeah. let's, uh, let's start lining up. Yeah, I just wanted to make a quick comment, Katie, just because I'm, I'm, I'm so used to always being the evil developer, so I should probably use my evil developer tone. But, but what happens is I, I really, I don't want to say I'm tired of it, but I am kind of tired of it when people come on the policy side and say, look, as a developer of a business, you ought to give me a break. Uh, you know, you ought to give it to the local guy. And I'm all for the local guy, but one of the things that I'd like for everyone to keep in mind is that it's a business, and generally when I'm setting rents or when I'm making a determination on how to run my business, it's really based on bottom line. If I have a million dollar loan and my monthly burn is, is 10,000, I can't afford to say you can come into my space for $5,000 because you're my local guy. Let's work together and get it done. And so it's not really always that simple. I get the policy, but I actually live it every day. And so I just don't want us to get, I don't want, to, I don't want everyone to leave thinking I'm the evil developer. I like the tone and the tone of that. 
Uh, but I think there's always room for dialogue and there's always ways of getting it done. But the solution is never as easy as give it to the local guy, give it to your neighbor. Uh, it's a business proposition and it's a business decision. And Wolf, okay, so I'm gonna open this up to all panelists. I did invite uh, people from the Sacramento Housing Redevelopment Authority, because I wanted to get someone from the city to talk about their view of how neighborhoods should be developed, redeveloped. Um, they didn't get back to me, but in your roles, you know, not yet, I'll, I'm working on them. But in your roles for what you do, how how is your view of how the city uh, uh, is working on, working with you in terms of, um, revitalizing a neighborhood, making it better. Uh, Katie, it sounds like you're not so hot in what they're doing, but in terms of your involvement with the city, is this something that they focus on? Or are you working with them? How, how are they doing? Who wants to start? Well, okay, Tom. So for us, um, you know, the real, the real thing we got, this is a, you know, special development zone. So we got, we got breaks on our, our sewer fees. Is it like a promise zone? Is that the type of it, zone? Uh, I can't remember exactly the okay, designation. Okay, but special zone. Okay. Yeah, special zone. Special development zone. So we got we got breaks on our, our sewer credits. That was a big help to us when, when we opened. But, you know, I I don't really think, I'd, I'd prefer not to have the city get too much involved in helping us because, you know, if they, they give you something, they always want something back. So. Oh, I, I tend to I tend to like to come in. You know, I wanted to come in and, and like I said, be be a hub for the community and 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 bring that together. Not I wasn't looking for breaks from from the city. So less is more for you. Yeah, William. Uh, a little while ago, you'd mentioned uh, the term urban pioneers, and always remind me of, of uh, pioneers uh, coming over the Sierras into the Sacramento Valley and going, "Look at all this vacant land," and the Nissanon saying, "Who are you calling vacant, white man?" Um, the SHRA, you have to remember, that's the same agency that, that demolished the West End. Um, and I don't know if this city, I, I, I really agree with what Katie is doing. I don't think the city is really doing anything uh, to limit gentrification. In fact, the, when, it's, when it's described at all, it's, it's more as a plus, and in part because uh, I think a lot of the local building community is concerned, uh, rightly so, that materials costs are very high, labor costs are very high. There's an enormous amount of competition from the Bay Area. Unless you can get X amount of money to build housing, it's not going to get built. And so I think a lot of, a lot of people see gentrification is the only way to get housing high enough to build, but the problem is that they are completely ignoring the consequences of that. Um, now, another, just if I could aside into Oak Park history for a little bit. This used to be the hipster neighborhood in the early 60s. Uh, the Belmonte Gallery on 35th Street was the coffee shop where guys like Wayne Tebow and other artists of the, the funk figurative art movement hung out, and, there were, and the, the Guild Theater yeah, Akinsanya uh, Cambone came a few later, but do, did he actually hang out at the, that he did? Yes, he did. That's yeah. terrific news. I was actually kind of wondering about that. I was, I was thinking about that. Uh, and then the, the Guild Theater was an art house theater, but it was, um, I mean, in the same ways that the Watts riots devastated that neighborhood, riots here, the, the Father's Day riot, the police raid on, on Black Panther headquarters that ended up destroying a lot of the neighborhood. And suddenly, the same redevelopment agency that had leveled the West End started taking over property here. And very often, as we, we see this, uh, if you, uh, 
take a look at photos in a lot of black communities throughout the country started proactively leveling blocks uh, because, oh, we don't want that vacant building to turn into blight, so we're just going to level the block. And um, then all of a sudden you can't use that building anymore. It's gone. And we're still suffering from those wounds um, that have been inflicted on, on, on our neighborhoods. Has the city changed its point of view since then? I mean, and I'm going to use an example. There's the mill, uh, but there's also Marina Vista, which is on Upper Broadway, right? There's the mill, and now there's Marina Vista, which SHRA owns. And I think they're, they're probably considering now what to do with that property. And I don't know what they're planning to do, but what... That's, do you know what they're planning to do with that area? They're planning to bulldoze it. Um, the neighborhood there, they, they, were re, they were renamed Marina Vista uh, a, few, a couple years ago, but they were previously known as New Helvetia and CV Circle. New Helvetia is a National Register listed historic district. Um, it's, it's, it's architecture and its association make it a historic building for purposes of environmental review. Now that has happened before. It happened, in, okay, but my hometown is Chicago. I'm not gonna buy a beer if you can find it on a map. Uh, <laughs> but there's a place in Chicago um, called Cabrini Green, and it's well known because of the high-rise towers, the green apartments. Those are gone. Those are demolished. But there was an earlier portion of that development, Cabrini townhomes. These were row houses, very much like New Helvetia. Uh, people tell me, oh, Cabrini Green is all gone. No, that's not correct. The 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 Carini row houses are still there. A third of them were restored and were reoccupied by the previous tenants. The other two thirds were cleared in order so that they could be demolished for new housing. The, the former tenants fought and won a lawsuit to move back in. And at this point, it looks like another third will be restored and reoccupied. There is potential. Um, in, here in Sacramento for New Helvetia, for CB Circle, to be restored and reoccupied and also have infill put into that neighborhood so it's not a single income neighborhood. Um, so there's room for more population density to make it a walkable neighborhood. Chicago shows how it can be done. And hey, if they can do it in Chicago, we can sure as heck do it here. There are solutions, they just aren't being applied. Okay, so let's start with audience questions. First up. Hi. Um, I had three questions, but I think um, one was pretty much answered. Um, my first question is for um, the business owners and the redevelopment. Um, in terms of your hiring and your businesses, um, are you committed to hiring folks from this community and what kind of outreach are you doing in the community to make sure that they know that you're having um, job openings so that um, they can benefit from the gentrification that is happening in their neighborhood. And that kind of leads to my other question is, um, there was a lot of talk about the redlining and the racial covenants, and Katie kind of talked about some of the homeowners who are losing their homes after I'm sure they've been here for many decades paying a mortgage or maybe not even having a mortgage anymore. Um, and when the, the community is starting to turn, turn around, they can't, they can't benefit from the equity um, that other homeowners can benefit from. Um, and that has um, been shown to have a very significant impact on the African-American community. That is how you build wealth. Um, and black, uh, black folks have been um, shut out from that process due to the redlining and the predatory lending um, you know, over many, many decades. Um, and so my question is, um, you have a lot of residents here who live in public housing or who do own their homes. Um, 
or maybe are renting um, because they haven't had the um, family wealth to be able to buy a home or even to start a business here in their community. Um, how can the city make sure that those residents benefit financially from um, the gentrification that's happening in their neighborhood? So let's start with part one, the hiring within the community um, for businesses. How is that handled or how do you do it, business owners and developers? Tom. I go first. So we, we do most of our advertising for jobs, honestly, through either our Facebook page, companies, or social media, and Craigslist. Um, most of our employees, and we have about 40, can walk or ride their bike to work. We do hire people that live in the area. We like to do that. We like to have people are close. Um, we do have a diversity of, of, you know, people who work for us. Um, and, you know, we're, we're proud that we brought a, a fair number of jobs to, uh, to Oak Park in, in the process of opening. So that, that's how. Does anyone else have, I don't know if St. Hope or ideal, ideally what you would like to uh, have in terms of hiring or a community percentage in terms of employees? Or is that not less a bear? Right. Well, for, for me personally, when we do our development projects, um, I always have a mix of small uh, minority-owned business uh, opportunities. And so that's something that I proactively look for. Uh, I also really try to ensure that almost all of my jobs are done by, by local vendors. And so that's uh, my contribution to being able to support our community. And then part two of the question was how to make sure the uh, residents benefit from economic development in the community? Okay. So thoughts, hopes, dreams, like what's in place, what would ideally be in place for that? Panelists, anyone want to take that? We have the Urban League here. So, um, Barbara. <laughs> Boy, <laughs> I'm tired. I, yeah, my voice projects, there's a lot of projection in here. Um, but we have the Urban League that just, you know, uh, opened around the corner from us um, here on Alhambra. And so there's just been like, I mean, if you're looking for jobs and workshops and, um, wow, um, some of everything, Urban League around the corner here on, on Alhambra, here at the Brick House, I don't really have employees, employees. I have a lot of interns that come here, but we do have resident artists um, that are here. So our community, our art community is very, very, very diverse that is here. Um, African-American, white, uh, Latina, um, uh, Asian artists that are here um, at the Brick House. But our employees, in terms of employees, it's generally like the Met, uh, intern students that come here, uh, some um, Sac State um, interns that come. And now we're working on trying to get um, uh, ARC and Sac City um, art community uh, here to help intern with this. And, That'll really help um, out a lot here. But in terms of providing job jobs, um, I don't think that the, the foot traffic for us here has qualified me to like 
add people on uh, the payroll. I think that's what our first Fridays are for here. So the more that we get um, more patrons here um, and, and them learning about what we have here in the community, spending money, then that allows us, you know, like people buying art, <laughs> that allows us to be able to um, generate uh, monies for payroll. Katie. And um, yeah, I think the city's programs, the city needs programs to help people stay in their homes and to purchase homes, like point one. There's some of those programs, but they're very limited in reach and they're largely grant funded. And so you'll have NeighborWorks who will come in and pick like a block that they can paint the houses and fix the fences on and then that's it for the rest of the year. Um, so obviously I think a lot more in public investment in those programs is warranted. Um, but as far as like jobs go, I mean, I think a lot of what we hear from businesses is like, well, I posted, but nobody applied. Um, like, and I think, I mean, I mean, the brewery's done a much better job of diversifying your staff level, and Adita's done a really good job of diversifying their staff, but we can't ignore the sort of the cyclic nature of poverty in our community and the fact that you've got kids who go to school in a very under-resourced school because, hey, we pay it from property taxes, right? So you've got kids who aren't getting the training, and so how do we effectively intervene at the junior high, high school age with mentorship programs? Like, how do we use the mayor's internship program to target kids of color to go work in these local businesses to give an infusion to the local businesses, but to also train them on actual local jobs that they can go and get. Um, like I would love to see some kids from um, Hiram Johnson get paid internships at Unseen Heroes, right? Like, I mean, they are just kicking it out of the park at Unseen Heroes. Like that would be an awesome one-year internship for them. Um, so just that, again, that intentionality. Um, and actually, honestly, I'd like to see local hire requirements put on local businesses. And maybe there's an incentive put in place. I'm sensitive to what Tracy's saying about like, look, if we're not going to make money, we're not going to make money you can't ask me to like forego all this profit but the house next door to me when it sold those guys made two hundred thousand dollars profit um like i'm sorry like i i know you're a business and you need to recoup your costs and you spent time doing this but two hundred thousand dollars is a little ridiculous but for those businesses that maybe are smaller and saying look i'll do it if you help me like why don't we have proactive property tax incentive programs why don't we have sales tax incentive programs why isn't the city using the tools that they do have to make it worth these businesses and developers while to actually go out and do this the right way. Um, and that's something the city totally has authority to do and cities all over the country do. We just don't do. Williams, did you want to add something? Just just uh, fairly briefly. Um, I'm not a business owner, though I am a little bit. I do, I do music booking. Um, but um, in the realm of uh, historic preservation, something I talk about a lot, um, there's a balance between um, the historic preservation, uh, like rehabbing a, a historic building versus new construction. New construction, the costs are about 50% materials, 50% labor. And generally, the materials come from out of the area. When you're doing historic rehab, that equation is different. It's about one-third materials, two-thirds labor. The result is that you're spending more money on labor that's typically labor within the neighborhood where the work is being done. And when you're fixing up, say a historic home, very often you're spending it in local stores, and so the money goes into the local community. And so it's more of the macro than the micro, but the economic effects of historic rehab versus new construction are actually more beneficial to the neighborhoods. It could be, and the challenge is always the bottom line. Um, the problem is that in all, all the things we're talking about here, it, it's all, well, you can do it if you want to, if you choose to. And so you're dependent on the, the goodwill of the individuals to do the right thing. 
thing. And so if there, but if there isn't a requirement that we do the right thing from, from a, from a higher authority, from the city or from other, other authority that says you, you're really supposed to do the good thing and, and you're obliged to do it, then there's that, that obligation isn't there because the bottom line is always present. Next question. Hi, my name is Jill McGee, and I'm the treasurer for the Oak Park Neighborhood Association, so I've sort of heard Katie tell her story a lot, which I really enjoy coming and listening to. But something that you said really struck me, and that was you mentioned the Hunger Games. And I haven't seen the Hunger Games, I admit it, I, I don't care about that show or those books, so shoot me later. But I did live in Paris, and one of the things that I found living in Paris interesting was that in the United States, it seems that the inner city is sort of the bad neighborhood. In Paris, the suburbs are the bad neighborhood. So if you could imagine we were Paris, Granite Bay would be the bad neighborhood. Roseville would be the bad neighborhood. And this would be the center of commerce and people with money. And it would radiate out sort of everybody sort of clinging to the edges. But I think about Paris as a place that's been there for a long time. And yeah, it's true, Sacramento's kind of old. But relative to Paris, no, not so much. So do we foresee in the future us going similar in this similar directions? People mentioned Berlin. Berlin was destroyed in World War II. Like gajillions of bombs were dropped on Berlin. So for them to be experiencing similar gentrification issues to us here in SAC is not really their fault. It kind of came from the outs. Well, they brought it on themselves, I guess. But it, it, the timeline is different from other places. So do we foresee really South SAC as sort of the edge of the rich people one day around here? And do we look to the future? And I think the land trust is such a fantastic opportunity Will the land trust be connected to a source of money? Because it seems like you can make the land available, but if the people can't get the loan, if they, can't, if they don't have the credit to get the loan, they can't get the money. Does the land trust develop a source of money and then start lending it to people who can't afford it? And then those people start to be in a predatory loan situation brought on them by the land trust. So how do you design something like a land trust that actually allows, maybe when I die, I want to leave my house to it, for example, because I want to make sure that someone's deciding that someone who lives here will buy it. I'm lucky because I worked with the NeighborWorks to get down payment assistance, to get loan assistance, to get a realtor to help me hold my hand, figure out my credit, buy a home that I couldn't have done on the open market by myself mostly because I don't make enough money to buy a fancy house. But when all of our house prices are three times, four times, five times, my parents bought my home when I grew up in, in the Bay Area, for 32 grand. It's worth a million dollars now. It's coming everywhere. How can you connect the land in the land trust to the money? And yeah, who do you partner with to get this? Who are the, who, where do you get the help you need to get that off the ground, ideally? I mean, ideally, a land trust in itself becomes self-sustaining with lease payments. Like, eventually, you get to a point where you have enough properties that you're managing that the lease payments you're getting back are funding the operations. But that point you raised about loans is very salient. A lot of folks in Oak Park know we just lost our Bank of America over here on the corner of MLK and Broadway. What folks don't know is that that was the eighth Bank of America to close in this city in the last three years. Um, and that in Oak Park, that Bank of America branch had only originated one 
one home loan in the entire time that it had been in Oak Park. Um, so it wasn't necessarily like at first I was like, oh no, it wasn't. Ser- it's not going to serve the neighborhood anymore. And then the question was brought back, like they were never really serving the neighborhood. Um, so I think this question of financing is something we keep coming back to, and like the lack of fiscally responsible, community-oriented banks in this region is something that really hurts us. And do we start our own credit union? Do we start a community bank that gives proceeds back to the community, not just the shareholders? These are all questions that we need to figure out and something that we're struggling with as a land trust, honestly. Like a lot of the operations funding for land trusts has historically come from the Catholic Committee on Human Rights, which I'm like, like let's not apply to them for funding because they do a lot of terrible stuff with the rest of their money. Um, but you know, so then what? What are we left with? Um, I think these foundations that have come in and invested money into our communities that have really contributed to the development that has led to the increased home values are my first stop. Um, like they should be like the endowment is present in almost every community where there's gentrification and land trust being formed. The endowment should be helping fund the operations for this um, because their good work has led to unintended consequences primarily increasing in home home values. Um, But yeah, that question about who banks serve, I I was really disappointed when we approached the federal government under the previous administration. Um, And we're trying to say, hey, this bank is closing, this bank is closing, this is a low moderate income census tract. They're highly unemployed, very low car ownership rates, like no bank in this area is around here. Bank of America is also the only bank that has the um, state benefits card. So if you're on unemployment, that's the only place you can go and pull out cash without taking a fee, right? And we're like, you got to do it, you got to do it. And they're basically like, sorry, we've got bigger problems. We've got bigger fish to fry. And all of the conversations that we had with Bank of America after that didn't result in one commitment for them to try to help figure out this financial situation. So we have to find a way to get our own money and our own wealth that's separate from these institutions that have historically taken advantage of our communities and then left because the market wasn't good for them in that community. And I don't know the answer to that, but if anybody does, please come see me. My email is on this flyer you picked up at the entrance. Well, Katie, what about local credit unions? Uh, are they? Are you talking to them? Are they interested? Because local credit Credit unions, I would think that they would be more amenable or Honestly, not? we've been more focused on the governance structure. I think it's really important that we have a strong governance before we talk to anybody about money. Um, so we've gotten a few op- um, offers um, to help connect us to SAFE or to Golden One to apply for CRA funding to start acquiring properties. But um, we haven't done that because once you start bringing in money, if you don't have a strong governance and accountability to the community, things get messy. So um, that's sort of our first step. Um, and again, if you have ideas, come on April 1st. The flyer's at the front. <laughs> All right, so next question. Hi, my name's Grace Phillips, and I'm kind of heading more into the spiritual realm. And there was a question about how we strike balance and how we can learn to listen to the no's that are said in our neighborhood about what we don't want. And I, I think for a lot of our business owners, from what I see, is there's not a firm understanding of of how the people operate. So if I'm speaking from the perspective of a black person, I'm speaking from 500 years of oppression. There are no bootstraps where I come from. So it's it's very difficult to go in and say, we don't want you to do this, and then someone will say, we need you to do that in order for us to help you, but help is not something that anyone really wants to hand to us. So, um, sorry, my question's on the other side. I, I think that often, the, the difficulty is that we need to build the right channels for understanding how to answer the no's, how to answer the, the people who are coming at you with, we don't, it's, I mean, it's hard, 
It's about race, like Barbara said. It really does come down to black and white. So oftentimes we will have a conversation about, well, we want to open a brewery, which is fantastic, but it, it isn't as inclusive as we would like it to be. So if someone steps up and they say, we don't want this because it doesn't include us, the understanding of why we, felt, why we feel on the outside isn't shared among all the people that are having the discussion. We don't understand why you feel on the outside. We don't understand why you feel like we're putting you out. We don't understand where you're coming from. And I'm just curious as to how you know, our business owners and our, our local folks here are willing to take the time to learn about the people. Um, also, my fear, though, is by the time that might happen, most of the people who would be affected by any benefits aren't going to be here anyway because we're almost at the end of this. You know, we, we're going to have grants, we're going to have money, we're going to have things for the school, but it's for the wrong people, so to speak. So we're, 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 it's an impasse at this point where you're like, we can fix everything, it all sounds really good, and once we get it done, who are we going to help but people who don't need the help? You know, are we reaching outside the neighborhood to work with our displaced persons from this neighborhood that we have displaced? I'll let so you. So getting community input and into your business decisions, how do you work that in? Tom. Well, I'd say for, for us at Oak Park Brewing Company, you know, I, I'm personally, and I know the other founders and the managers are always in communication with our clientele, you know, um, and and I'm just going to reiterate, there's a lot of, you know, diversity in our clientele and, and we can't control who comes into the brewery and and who doesn't either. Um, you know, we uh, you know, we want to be welcoming to everyone. Um, we work hard to keep our prices moderate so that we can, you know, appeal to the community. You know, I'm always reminding the chefs when they get a little carried away and want to do something too creative. <laughs> <laughs> we can't do a $25 dinner plate here. We're, we're in Oak Park, so um, I want to keep it more affordable so we can be more inclusive for, for everybody in, in the community. Um, and so so that that's important to me. And, and we get involved with whether it's helping Wellspring or working with NeighborWorks when they're having a fundraiser. And, and so we try to we try to be involved with the, those organizations in the community that, that benefit the people in the community. Tracy? Yeah, so it's, you know, it's, it's an interesting question that you raise. I have a joke that I tell my friends quite frequently. It used to be a time when I'd go into, go into Old Soul in the morning and, and have a cup of coffee. And now I always joke. I say, you know, I was, I was in Old Soul this morning having a cup of coffee, and the only thing black in Old Soul was the coffee. And so it's changed. The community is really changing. My part, uh, you know, I work closely with the community. I work closely with the churches. Uh, we have 1,200 kids in our school system. Uh, I try to work as closely as I can with the parents and ensure that we're doing what we can in the community. Um, but, you know, like I said, and I'm, I'm going to go back to there are some things we can control in the community, and there's just some things we just can't. Uh, and so we're working as hard as we can on the things that we control. Uh, and a lot of, uh, I hear the, 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 the response I get a lot, and I kind of enjoy it. They're like, you know, Tracy, you're, you're really pro-black. And I'm like, yeah, well, first of all, I'm black, yeah. Uh, but because I'm pro-black doesn't mean that I'm anti-anything else. I know the statistics about my brothers and sisters, and I know that we need more. And so I'm always going to be focused as much as possible on trying to do what I can do for my community. 
Uh, but I'm looking at my community as a whole, but I do realize where I came from and, and who I am when I look at myself and who I am when other people look at me. So I'm always going to fight and continue to fight for uh, my community, uh, and that will never change. Can you go to the mic and do it just because we're recording for podcast? So, so is more the focus on control or is the focus on understanding? Because if you want to control, it's, it's not a hard thing to write a list and, list and follow through those. But if it is about understanding what you're trying to manipulate, it seems like there's, there's more digging deep. You know, appreciating black lives and whatnot isn't as important as there isn't an understanding. And I know you as a black man probably have a, a, you know, a firmer foothold in that. But a lot of our business owners and a lot of people who are coming in here new are encroaching on a culture of people who are just being wiped out here in Oak Park. So I, I'm more focused on understanding of the plight of the citizens of Oak Park as opposed to controlling how money comes in and displaces them. Is that a question for me? Absolutely. <laughs> Appreciate it. I, I do not believe those are mutually exclusive, but, but yes, I, I do have an understanding, probably as well as anyone else on, on this panel, if not more than anyone else on this panel. And so you, you have to, uh, you don't have to, but I have to sort of put myself in, in my place. I know who I am. Uh, I know what I, I represent. I know where I came from. I know the community. Uh, I am here. I lived here for a number of years. I ran the streets when no one wanted to be in the streets. And so I understand the plight. Um, but I also understand uh, you know, some of the things that we've touched on is, is this underlying principle of poverty. And a lot of people, when we're talking about gentrification, just sort of you know, skim over that. Uh, it's not just an issue of, of race. It's not just an issue of real estate values. It's, just, it's not just an, an issue of, of who's got what and what business are here. It's, it's a very complicated issue, and, and I, I don't profess to sit here and know the answer to it. All I can say is I'm here. Uh, I understand the community. I'm part of the community. Uh, I'm going to always fight for the community. And yeah, there's, there's a certain amount of control. I, I don't think control is a bad word. Uh, but the control part, uh, there's, there's a number of different ways I think you can look at it. One, we've talked a lot about the displaced residents, and we focused a little bit on the African-American community. We haven't talked about the, the African-American community that actually are homeowners and have been homeowners for years and still are benefiting from the changes that are occurring in this community. It's not all bad for all people. Uh, there are a lot of people that I know that are saying, gee, I have a house that I bought in 1960. Somebody just offered me $400,000 for it. What do I do? I, do what you want. I mean, you do what you want with it. And so that's not a bad thing. I mean, we can't always just sit around and talk about the negatives of, of the G word because it's not always negative. As I said earlier, it's, it really depends on what lens you look through. I have my unique lens. Uh, as a black man from Iowa, uh, everybody in here has their own lens. And so we're all here. I think the important reason for having this meeting is to have dialogue, get perspective. You look around. It's, uh, this is our community. Uh, I don't know who all lives in Oak Park, but this is, this is community. It's not about a lot of things, but it is about a lot of things. Uh, but just to answer that question, yeah, I'm, I'm going to always be here. I'm always going to be part of this community. I moved out here because of Oak Park, uh, Sacramento. 
uh, and I'm not I'm not going anywhere. But also, uh, I'm gonna I'm not gonna lie about the control part. If if I'm gonna be part of this community and I want to be able to have some some play and some dialogue and have some 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 way of influencing, I have to have some control over it. I can't I can't say what's gonna happen on that block if I don't own that block. I can't say who's gonna work in my business if I don't have a business. It's really easy for a lot of people to pack themselves in a room uh, and scream about, we want change, we want this. But they really, what I said earlier is, do you have a seat at the table or are you on the menu? It's like you have to figure out how you get your seat on the table, what you're willing to fight for, and what influence you have. And you have to use those chips as your best of your ability. Some people are gonna like it, some people are not gonna like it. Uh, but at the end of the day, that's just the way it is. But con- my conclusion is, yeah, I'm, I'm here. I understand. I'm not going anywhere. I will always be here. Okay, I'm sorry. I know we're running. We're running very short on time because I know one of our panelists has to go. So I just want to take these two questions, and hopefully they will address what you guys have. We'll, we'll wrap it up at the end. We'll make sure it's all right. So next question. So I don't really have a question. I have more of a statement. Um, to piggyback on what the sister just said, um, looking around this room, you see what the issue of gentrification is in Oak Park. Uh, you see a lot of gentrifiers. You don't see a lot of people from the community. Um, and that's how the people in the community feel about the things that have come anew. The things that have come to the community recently are things for the people in this room. They're not necessarily for the people who have been here. Uh, that's something that needs to be addressed. Otherwise, that'll be the thing that causes a rift between the community. Um, new people, don't treat the people that have been here like they're aliens in their own community. That'll save everybody a lot of trouble. Um, if you want to be a part of the community, uh, make sure that you speak to your neighbor. Look at your neighbor like they're a person, not like they might necessarily rob you. That's just real. Um, I do stand up. I do a joke about gentrification. Good thing about gentrification, white people move in. Bad thing about gentrification, white people move in. <laughs> Good thing about gentrification, now the police actually come. Yeah. That's true. That's the realness of it. Now, I understand that Tracy's a businessman and you know you're trying to make money. And the whole concept of gentrification isn't, it's not really that complex. It's as simple as the reason why come you have to buy a new car is because they don't make a car that lasts forever anymore. The reason why gentrification happened is because they have to create money somewhere else. So they have to tell white people that it's not cool to live in the suburbs anymore. You should come back downtown thing that happens when they do that is they don't care about the people that are downtown. They just care about the money. Until that changes, this will be a cycle that will keep going. Your kids will be 25, 25 years from now, your kids will be doing the same thing except for they'll be going in the reverse direction. That's, how, that's, just, that's that simple. So just to make it simple for you, Deborah. All right, that's all I had to say. Anyone want to comment on that? Barbara. Uh, well, uh, you know, just just kind of reiterating uh, what it was that Tracy said, um, 
bringing community, so having that seat at the table. So one of the efforts that has to really happen is, is organizations or community groups that are here and if we're wanting to have a voice about what our community is looking like, then we're really going to have to make those efforts to go out into the community to bring the community in to be a part of that conversation. All right, so that's how you get those seats uh, at the table. Um, purposely just going out there and, 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 and bringing in community to be able to um, generate a voice. I do think that, I don't know, I guess for me, uh, I, I still see um, uh, change generated by um, the lapse of a community that has just gone neglected. And so opportunities come when a community is just left abandoned and all of a sudden it's the community to be in. So you have um, uh, people coming from Roseville or people coming from the Bay Area coming into communities like this and buying the properties. Do we want to be able to have um, a community that is beautiful? Yeah, we all do. But we all want to make sure, I just have to keep reiterating that, we all want to make sure that we are part of that decision that is framing what our communities are supposed to, to look like. Last question. Um, touching on what you had just said and Tracy directly talking about if you want, oh, sorry, if you're not at the table, you'll be on the menu. What are some things directly that you would advise or that you're doing directly in this community with the assets that you have, reaching out to local neighborhood associations, um, community leaders to be on that table and make these decisions with you and your organization? I feel like there are a lot of boards in this city that choose people based on friendships and it's not working. Um, the same decisions are made, the same artists are making these choices and the artists and developers are in this roundabout cycle and they've missed a huge component of the community, the neighborhood, and the city does the same thing. So how do you, can you give me specific examples that you're doing here in this community with your assets to help the community with the current community? No, absolutely, and that's a that's a great question. Um, first of all, let me let me first say that I I'm at a lot of tables. I don't really have a table, and so there's there's a really big distinction. So what I'm saying is that everyone in this room is is aware of the changes that are going on in Oak Park, and everyone sort of knows how it's happening. And so you know there there are community organizations. There's there's the business association. There's the neighborhood association. Uh, naturally, there's the city council meetings, and that's where you just need to go and voice your opinion. Um, I don't know any other ways other than at a very grassroots level in your community to sit down and have a dialogue with your neighbor. Someone said, you know, get, get to know your neighbor. Uh, that's, how, that's how it starts. Uh, for me, I'm, I'm in the community. I, you know, my assets are, are out there. Uh, we specifically determined that our focus was going to be on economic growth and on education. And so for us, it was recruiting like-minded uh, ed reform groups in the neighborhood, City Year, Teach for America, College Track, uh, to work in conjunction so that we can create uh, what the mayor says is 
without great schools, you can't have great cities. So part of our mission really is not just the economic development piece and working with developers and tenants that share that mission, uh, but it's also this just this um, just working on getting the group together and, and sharing a mission. And so it's it's really there's there's more than one table. Uh, so it's 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 your table. It's where you. Everybody at this table has it. Everybody in this room has an interest. Uh, everybody in this room may or may not be Oak Park residents, or they may be business owners. But it's just it's dialogue like this, which is the table. I mean, you find out what's going on in your community from these meetings. Uh, you find out who's interested and shares values with you at these meetings. And this is when you sit down and, and you start the dialogue. And that's, in my opinion, how it begins. Katie, but also I want to say, I want that ties into my last question that I had for all of you in terms of, I guess, from your point of view, how the community can get more involved. How can there be, I don't know if the balance is the right word, but making sure all the seats are at the table and as many people as possible in the community are at the table. Advice, uh, suggestions, your point of view. So maybe that might ties in, but let's start with Katie and then work our way down to Tom. So the reason when I do these talks, I mean, I talk a lot about like racial segregation and they're like, man, that's been illegal for 50 years. Like, let's talk about today, right? And the reason I think some of our commenters have talked about 500 years, hundreds of years, we can't ignore this historical arc that we're on in the moment. So when we talk about this table, right? Like, I mean, I am of the cultural mindset that whenever you have a seat at the table, your one job is to pull up a seat next to you. Um, that your job when you're at that table is to make sure that people have a voice at that table. Who here has ever been to a public meeting where there are folks in the room who didn't speak English? Oh, awesome. Who here in this room doesn't speak English? Oh, gotcha. Um, anyhow, so how many, I mean, I go to a lot of city council meetings, I go to regional transit meetings, I go to state, you know, board of education meetings, I go to all these meetings, and like, very rarely is anybody there who doesn't speak English. How many people can tell me the percentage of people in Sacramento who don't speak English is their first language? That's a good chunk of folks, right? So I think we've built a decision-making structure based on privilege. Um, we hold regional transit meetings until the bus lines stop. So if you're dependent on transportation, you can't go to those meetings. We hold city council meetings on a Tuesday at 5.30. If you have a second job or if you don't work during traditional hours, you're not gonna go to that meeting. Even if you could go, the idea of standing at a dais um, like beneath all of these people staring down at you and saying your case for two minutes is a very culturally specific way of voicing your opinions that is not conducive to most people how they feel comfortable coming in saying their opinion. So for us to say it is your job to get into that room and make sure your voice is heard is not only, it's almost kind of insulting, <laughs> and I won't, and I know you didn't intend it to be insulting, but it is because it assumes that everybody has that choice, and that's not the fact, and we know that's not the fact, and so we can't assume that just because somebody isn't in the room that they don't care, or that they didn't try hard, or that they don't have a stake in this. It is our job as people who can influence decisions to proactively go out, as Barbara said, and look for that interest to do the door-to-door -door canvassing, to hold the meetings until we get the people there that we know need to be there, and then to have a discussion. Oak Park is not a, a predominantly African-American community anymore. We have a high immigrant population. We have a whole street on First 
avenue that's entirely Muslim, like one family that all lives together that's like totally awesome and you should go. It's amazing, right? They've been there for 30 years. Um, so like it is our job to proactively seek that input or else we replicate the systems that continue to exist. Um, if you grow up in a neighborhood where you don't have a well-resourced school, where your parents work multiple jobs, where you're only getting the minimum wage jobs to make way through, and then you hear something like, it's your job to go to a meeting. I know you're trying to wrap me up, but I've been holding this in for like five minutes. I know. Um, <laughs> so it is not equitable and it is not right and it is not based on historical fact or what is socially just it is our job to make sure that we represent these communities and we are not doing that um, so if we are going to say that with good conscience we are making decisions that are in the best interest of everybody we must be proactively making sure that this is in the best interest of everybody and recognizing that because people can't go to meetings because they don't understand the issue because they're not submitting comments does not mean that they do not care and that is why these systems of inequity continue to persist so advice that's what I'm asking for advice for audience Audience, podcast members, how do they get those people to the table? That's exactly what I just said. You got to go out and get the input. Okay. People, some people are never going to come to a meeting like this. And it's not because they don't think gentrification is important. It's because it's not in their cultural repertoire. They can't physically make it to this location. They can't physically get off of work so that they can get to this location because they're at work, you know, serving awesome beer across the street or whatever they're doing, right? Like we need to recognize that some people may not be at the table and reconstruct the table, reconstruct the process so that it is equitable and accessible to everybody. William. Well, there there is a cautionary tale where um, an attempt at gentrification didn't work. Uh, along Del Paso Boulevard, North Sacramento in the 1990s, there was a proactive effort by the city and by some of the business communities that said, uh, essentially, we're deliberately going to gentrify this neighborhood. And it could almost be a case study on how not to do it because the neighborhood was absolutely not involved in the decision. The people who lived in the neighborhood were treated as best as a side effect. The businesses that were put in place, the art galleries that are place did not engage the neighborhood they didn't include the neighborhood as a result there was a very great deal of hostility towards those businesses uh, meetings like this didn't happen there uh, if there's one thing that's different between Oak Park and North Sacramento, it's that in the early 2000s, I lived at 34th and T, which is technically in 95816, but it's close enough to Oak Park where you felt like part of the neighborhood. Some of the early meetings of, of, of St. Hope when Kevin Johnson first came back to Sacramento, and some of that engagement began uh, at an earlier cycle, the point where at least this, these meetings are happening. Uh, now, unlike the 1990s, we're in what sociologists, are, some sociologists are calling the great inversion, essentially a return to downtowns or return to cities. This is a national trend. It's not something that's going to fizzle out. It is something that is going to continue. Uh, and it's really up to us as citizens to decide consciously which way it will go. The uh, article that was posted about Berlin and the steps that are being taken to prevent gentrification of Berlin were not taken up by the city. They were taken up by, by, by only because the citizens demanded that the city listen, the city respond, and the city do things more fairly. And um, I mean, the main tools that we, that we we talked a little bit about community land trusts. We've talked. I've talked a little bit about, about historic preservation. Creating historic districts has some pluses and minuses. But one of the pluses is that it means that the the land on the, the building on top of the land is more valuable than the land, which means that it's less likely to be bought up by a speculator who wants to raise it and build it something build something far more expensive on it. it doesn't mean you can't grow. In fact, uh, developers and development and lots of new housing is critical to our future because we need to make room for a lot more people.
Um, so it's it's both up to the community to be involved in whatever ways we can, and it is up to our leaders to listen to us because we get angry when we're ignored. Barbara? So um, going where the people are at, you have to meet people where they are at. And if you're not meeting people where they're at, then yes, you start having the resentment, you start having the dissension. Um, it's about creating a equitable balance for all persons, all peoples to just be able to have a voice. So we're not really trying to, to I guess for me it's, it's, I hate that word, inclusion. Because for me, it implies that you were never at the table anyway, if I have to use that word. So it's, it's, it's really, again, for us learning how to create the balance. And when you're walking into a community, being able to have the voice and the, the, the relationship with that community so that you can be able to say, OK, um, I can lay down at night and close my eyes and go to sleep because I know that And I think that there's a way to be able to do that. Tracy. Uh, first, I just want to thank everyone. I know we've gone over a little bit today. But uh, this, you know, what we're doing right now, this really is the table. Uh, I know some people can't meet people where they are. Some people can't go to city hall meetings. But I think this beginning of the dialogue is really an opportunity for everyone to start thinking about community and, and what it means to be a community, uh, what gentrification may or may not mean to you. Uh, and so I think that this is a, a great start to having dialogue in the community. And uh, again, I just want to thank you guys for allowing me to be a part of this opportunity. Last word, Tom. Okay, so um, with regards to what Katie was saying, yeah, not everybody can make it to a city council meeting or whatever. I think though that neighborhood associations and business associations create a great opportunity to have somebody who can be a liaison to those organizations. So if you can engage with your local neighborhood association and business association, then even if you can't be at the table, at least your voice has been heard by somebody who's gonna represent you and represent the, the overall interests of the neighborhood association. That, and that's how, that's how I would do it if I couldn't make it. I'd make sure to whatever professional organization or neighborhood organization or whatever that I could be involved at, that at least I have a voice there. You know, it's, I can't always be at the state capitol to talk about 
the best interest for my brewery, but the California Craft Brewers Association can be. And so I'm a member and I go to the meetings and speak up and all that. I'm, you know, I'm on the board of directors for the Sacramento Area Brewers Guild as well for a similar purpose. So um, just go to the meetings like, like everyone being here is exactly like what Tracy said, that that is being at the table and some people got to come up and voice their opinions at least here and be, be better informed so they can make make decisions later on so thank you very much and so yes this is another all the housing panels have gone over by time but that just shows there's so much and we often just scratch the surface but at least i think with part three part two part one the sense is it's a start and it, a lot of it comes from individuals collecting together and voicing their opinion just like this one so thank you guys for hanging out for two hours plus thank you to the panelists um there's so much more to discuss that obviously we didn't get to but the podcast will go up uh this week and i'm going to start collecting resources and advice based on what you have said here to put on the website for others to listen to so thank you panelists thank you audience I learned a lot. Great discussion. So thank you. <laughs>